This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. One of the most important subjects we talk about is marriage. And that brings us to our relationship story hour with our friend J.P. DeGantz, who runs a group called Communio. Communio is committed to healing marriages, and they do phenomenal work across the country. And you're about to hear from two people and about the trials they faced both to be together and to stay together. Here's J.P. with their story. Don and Casey Cochran have been building a life together in Jacksonville, Florida. A good life. Raising kids together from different relationships, finding fulfilling work, and navigating issues of intimacy and trust. But to really appreciate their strength and growth, we have to go way back to their childhoods. Young Casey was dealt a hand with some very tough cards. I was in a a broken home. My parents divorced when I was very young. My dad remarried. He committed suicide in 1975. He was what we now call manic depression. But he, uh, two days before my 11th birthday, he shot himself in the head. And um, I'm the one who found him. I'm the one who opened the door and saw, you know. It changed how people perceived my brothers and myself. I mean, we were picked on. My mom was uh, scared and alone with three boys who were 11, 11, and 8. And she didn't know what to do, and she remarried within a year and a half, two years, and the totally wrong guy. He was a abusive alcoholic. I was the biggest, so I got the beatings. So they divorced. My mom met this guy, Bob, and they ended up getting married. He was a great guy. We were in and out of church. Like, we would go to church after my dad died. We were in church a lot, and the youth group, and the church poured into us. And that was a major part of my life, was being in the youth group and being around uh, guys who were Christian men who we did was a thing called RAs, Royal Ambassadors. We were very involved in that. I went to high school, graduated, and went on my own way, did all the things that everyone does, all the drinking and all the partying and all the stupidness that the teenagers do. And I uh, got out of high school and joined the Navy, came to Jacksonville, got married, got divorced right after that. I mean, it was less than a year we were married. She cheated the whole time, and then I got another girl pregnant and decided to do the right thing, married her. Stayed married for about 11 years, divorced. Both of us were unfaithful to each other. And then I met Dawn in 1999. Like Casey, Dawn also came from a broken family. Though she began life with a place where she felt like she belonged, it didn't last. My mom was pregnant uh, with me and left my biological father and went to live with my grandmother. And she already had um, three other kids. Apparently, my oldest brother was living with my grandmother already, and my two other brothers um, were in foster care. And um, 
And when I was born, my biological father, when he found out I was a girl, said he didn't want me. I didn't know any of this until much, much later, like five or 10 years ago. My brothers were put in foster care as a spite move on my biological father's part, who I have, as far as I know, have never met. I've never wanted to know him, so it's never been a loss to me. So anyway, my grandmother, I lived with her until I was seven, and my grandmother, I called her my heart. I mean, she gave me love and affection and just everything I needed. She died of cancer when I was seven, which just totally just devastated me. I knew that my mom was my mom, because she came to visit me twice when I was little, and I knew that my grandmother was my grandmother, but I called my grandmother mama, and I called my mom by her, her name. I called her Aunt Pat, Aunt Patty or whatever, everybody else was calling her, but I knew she was my mom. And um, as a little girl, it made sense to me, but when I think about it as an adult, it's kind of messed up. And, you know, but, um, but back then it didn't just seem normal to me. My grandmother, she was married to, I didn't know this at the time, a pedophile. He um, had molested my mom and my aunt, and I, did, I didn't know that. Um, but as soon as my grandmother got sick, I was removed from the home and put in with family friends. And I just thought I was because my grandmother was sick. I found out much, much later it was because of him. And I did not know that. Um, I didn't know that's why. So, um, so that was kind of made me feel kind of gross when I found that out. But I grew up with a lot of love in that home, you know, with my grandmother and, um, and I lived in a small town. There was a lot of family around and I never felt unloved during that time. But when she passed away, I um, had to go live with my mom who had remarried by this time. She had another child, my sister, and she'd gotten my brothers back out of foster care and my older brother was living with her. So they were, everybody was there but me. And so I had to go join this family that I never, ever felt part of. I always felt like an outsider. And my sister's father adopted us and I guess he tried, but I don't think he knew how to be a father. And him and my mom split up, and, um, and when they did, he just kind of dropped all of us. My youngest brother, he ran away when he was 15, and um, he never came back. He's been, he's still gone. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he's dead or alive right now. While many people long for normalcy in their life, Normal doesn't necessarily mean good. Here again is Dawn. When my mom married my stepdad that she's married to now, I mean, things were normal. We had a normal life because when she was married and divorced my dad, um, she would like be gone and my oldest brother would be in charge. And he was only 18 and he was in charge of four kids. And during that time, I was sexually molested and nobody knows that. My mom never knew that. I never told my mom that. She to this day doesn't know. The only person I ever told was Casey. I mean, I didn't even tell my previous husband that. And, um, you know, so um, it was just nothing, I, nobody I ever told, you know, but my brother doesn't even know. I think if my brother had found out, he probably would, because it was his friend, he probably would have killed the guy who did it. 
I just felt alone. I just felt like I had nobody. Um, my, you know, I never felt like anybody cared about me after my grandmother died. And so I finished out high school and it was okay. I met my ex-husband and, um, you know, we dated and got married and we were married for 13 years. We had a son. During that time, I was unfaithful to him before I had my son. And then I thought, well, okay, that was a mistake and I was guilty and I just can't do this again. And I tried to make it work and that's when we had my son. Then I thought, this isn't working and I left because I knew that I would do it again. So I thought, I, I, I gotta get out of here. I'm not the type of person that can be told what to do. <laughs> I just, he was just very controlling and he didn't, I mean, he was never abusive and I thought life is too short, so I left. For about a year, I was single. I met my ex-husband when I was 18 and I was with him for 15 years, so um, I never really had a single life. So um, I was 33 when I left him, so I was kind of making up for lost time. And I was, you know, I was going to the bars and I was, you know, hanging out with my friends, just being free for the first time in my life. And I was having a good time, but I found out that guys were really jerks. And I was like, I am done. I'm just done with guys. I don't, I don't want to be in a relationship. I don't want a boyfriend. I don't want anything to do with guys at all. But of course, that's not the way things turned out. My friend wanted to go to this particular bar that old people hung out at. And I'm like, I don't want to go to this bar, but um, okay, fine, we'll go. And I had been to the beach the day before and I was completely sunburned. And usually I would go out in jeans and a t-shirt or whatever and just be really casual. But I had to wear this dress because I was completely sunburned and I didn't want anything touching me. I never dressed like that to go out, but I did that night, and, um, and my tag was sticking out. I was out with friends just to go dancing and have a good time. So we're, we're there, and the bar had one of those um, standing rails. We're in, a, in seats, and the rail is right in front of us, and I see her there, and her tag is sticking out. And I nudged my buddy, and I said, hey, man, See that girl over there? I'm gonna go hit on her. And he's like, okay, whatever, I'm being a smart aleck. And I walk over and I tucked her tag in. Well, when he did that, I was standing with my friend and I spun around like, I just turned around like, who are you, you know? And I said, uh, excuse me, I'm not, not flirting with you. Not that I wouldn't flirt with you, but I'm really anal retentive and I gotta fix this. And I tucked her tag in and I turned around and, and walked away. And my friend's like, she's like, oh my God, he's so cute. And he had a tattoo on the back of his neck and she saw the tattoo on the back of his neck and she's like, oh my God, he's in a gang. And I was like, he's not in a gang. Do you know what bar we're in? We were not in any place where there would be gang members hanging out. I was like, I gotta get out of here. I mean, I've got to get out of this bar. And so we left because it was not a place I hung out ever. I didn't even want to be seen in this bar. My friend wanted to go back the next week because she was looking for somebody. And I wasn't sunburned the next week, so I had on regular clothes. So the next week, I'm, we're sitting in a different location at a, 
right on the edge of the dance floor. I thought he was with this girl that he was with, and so I was like, you know, I thought he was just another one of the jerks. I'm out of here, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and deal with this guy who's obviously with somebody, he's flirting with me, I'm done, you know. So I thought he was with this girl. It was like every person in the bar that came over to talk to me was drunk. And I don't do drunk, I just don't, everybody was just bugging the crap, and I was, I was really getting ready to leave. And we were talking about some other one girl that came over and, and whatever. And then I overheard her and her friend, who, who I didn't recognize, talking about the girl who had just hit on me and about how she was dressed and all that. And I said, I heard that. And then. Well, he doesn't know, but I saw him when I walked in. And, um, <laughs> and I told my friend, I, I said, there's that guy. And I said, and he's not with that girl because the girl that he was with was sitting on this other guy's lap. Okay, I'm going after that. And so we start talking trash about this girl. And I made sure that I positioned myself in a, in a place where he could see me and hear me. And so we start talking trash about this girl. And he turned around and he said, I heard that. Well, my drunk friend, she's like, you remember us? And <laughs> because she knew from the last week. And he's like, no. And I was like, uh, you tucked my tag in my dress last week. And he's like, that was you? Because I look completely different because I never dressed trashy like I did the, the week before. And I had jeans and everything on. So then that was it. He asked me if I wanted to dance. We've been together ever since. Even though the connection they made was immediate, their path to marriage wasn't exactly romantic. We got married 10 months to the day that we met. 10 months. And we got married because um, our, my, the lease was up on our apartment and we were looking for another place to live and we started looking at houses and we had to be married to get the loan. And I said, no, I don't want to be married. I absolutely do not want to be married because I thought marriage was, a, was just a whole just sham because I'd been married and I thought, I mean, I got married for all the right reasons, thought I did anyway, and I was engaged for three years, I got married, did the whole big wedding, thought I was getting married for, you know, life and it didn't work out. And I'm like, I'm not doing this again. I mean, I'd just rather just live with you and then maybe later down the road, if we're still together, then get married, but I'm not, no, I'm not doing this. Somehow he talked me into it. I don't know how, but he did. He talked me into marrying him. And the Cochran's discovered what so many couples do. Marriage can provide strength to deal with challenges together, but it certainly doesn't erase those challenges. It's a blended family because I had two daughters and she had a son. I think that the difficulty for us was the, the kids, how we did things differently. He put me in a bad place. I always, my daughters were moved to South Florida after my divorce. So I always felt guilty when I would see them that I didn't want to be a disciplinarian. I didn't want to come down on them hard. And she's a pretty strict disciplinarian about, hey, you're going to do this. And I, I, I forced her into being the bad guy a lot of times when I shouldn't have, because I didn't want my daughters to think, oh, dad's a butt, you know, I didn't want that. I was very, very involved in their life until I was divorced and I mean I did everything with my kids and then my my ex moved him south and and there was a lot of bitterness but um it was just uh, there was some times where I thought you know my daughters would do something or say something especially there in the very beginning that was completely inappropriate to her and we almost broke up then and there but it, 
we made it through it. It was about respect for me because his girls had no respect for him. But I was going to make sure they respected me. You know, they didn't have to like me, but they were going to respect me. We've been hearing from Dawn and Casey on how they met and got married, and how, after that, they had to sort out how to be parents together to children from different relationships. They say being a mom is hard, but being a stepmom is probably harder, especially when you have forces fighting against you. And he wouldn't do anything, and it made me mad at him. And um, I'm like, okay, you've got to step up and be the dad, but he wouldn't. And so I said, okay, fine, you know, I, I have to do it. And it really, it caused problems between us. Like the time Dawn had to come to her son Cody's defense. One time when we first got together that Christmas, Cody got in trouble for something. They were laughing at Cody for getting in trouble. And Cody was five years old. Amber was sitting on his lap and him and Amber were laughing. And, um, and I said, are you really laughing at Cody getting in trouble? I was talking to him. And he's like, he's like no, um, Amber just told me a joke. And I was like, so you're gonna lie to me? You know, you're, really, you're just sitting there and lie to me. And I told him at that point, I said, you know, because he was trying to make Amber happy and, um, and not be the bad guy. And I told him, I said, get your kids, get your stuff, get out of my house. I said, because I'm done. I said, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not going to have you appease your kids while you're sitting here making fun of my kid for getting in trouble where I'm trying to teach him a life lesson. And, you know, so he, he came and apologized because I just, I wasn't going to have bad kids. From my perspective, I was trying to be the good guy. When we first got together, I worked two jobs and I worked shift work. So it was like, I mean, I'd go on Saturday day shift, and then Sunday I would work 3 to 11, and then Monday I would work 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 7 o'clock the next morning, and then I would go in at 11 o'clock that night until 7 in the morning, and then I was off until Saturday. For a couple years, the first couple years we were together was like that. With time and effort, Casey and Don worked through these issues that so many busy parents and step-parents go through. And things were looking up. Dawn made big strides at work, and so did Casey, who became the director of utilities for two Navy bases. Everything seemed to be going great. And then Casey let his guard down. So when I'm working and all that, I was uh, watching some porn pretty often. and never thought really anything about it at all. Started playing some games you see on Facebook, you can play this game or whatever, and was talking to people in the games, became flirting with people in the games. And I cheated, and she had no clue. I was completely blindsided. I didn't see any of that coming. I mean, I was at home doing my thing, you know, and, um, you know, keeping the house going, keeping the bills going, you know, while he's out, you know, um, working. I just thought he was, you know, traveling, doing his thing. He came home and confessed and he's telling me and I'm thinking, this is not my life, you know, this is 
somebody else's life. This isn't, this can't be, you know. How can the person who, you know, I've loved my soulmate, how can he be telling me this? And I just was sick. I didn't eat for three days. All I did was cry. I went to my best friend's house the day that he told me. She asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, honestly? And she said, yeah. And I said, I just want to go home. I just want to go home and I, I, just want, I just want him to hold me and I want him to tell me he loves me. And she said, then you need to go home. And I forgave him that night. I mean, the night he told me. And it wrecked her. I watched it wreck her in front of me. And it, it was the hardest thing I ever did, but it was also the most painful thing I ever did because of what I saw her go through. As we moved forward, she told me she forgave me, which I was in shock that she would forgive me. I thought that my marriage would be over, that our life would be over, and it's not what happened. We went to some counseling. The marriage counselor actually told us that we were way ahead of most people. Dawn and Casey may well have been ahead of others because of how aware they each were and how committed they were to making their marriage work. But even after their marriage counseling, Casey knew that something was missing. We were never, ever in church. I refused to go. I'd had a really bad experience with my ex-wife. It was around Christmas time. I wanted to go to church. And she was like, I don't need to go to church. I, I've never had to go to church before. I, you know, why? And I just begged her. We were sitting in the driveway. We were discussing this. And I was bawling, crying. And I know that I need to be in community. And I know that I need this. Just go. And we went to a Christmas service with a friend of hers. I never read the Bible. I never went to Sunday school. It wasn't me. So we went. I didn't like the church, <laughs> but um, I told Casey, I said, okay, it's, I said, okay, it's, it's not that bad, you know, I, I guess we can, he said, do you want to start looking for a church? And I said, okay, we can start looking for a church. So we went on the hunt. We went to more than a couple. We went to like seven different churches. And like his celebration was always at the top of our list, but for some reason, it wasn't the first church we went to. It was like, it was like God was saying, you need to visit these other churches before you go to your first choice. So we visited these other churches, and then when we visited Celebration, we never went to another church. And we walked in, there was nothing going on. We sat down in the sanctuary, and there was absolutely nothing going on. Um, I think the, like the house music was playing. And um, I looked at Casey and I said, this is our church. We joined this uh, marriage, empty nesters group, who were all fantastic people, the people who do our Bible study. They invited us to breakfast and we're hanging out, we're having a really good time and we just started talking about our lives and, and you know, what brought us to the church and this and that and the other and I just told him. didn't even warn me that he was gonna do it. I was, I was in mid-bite and I just, I mean, I literally felt my food coming up. And that was the first time that we ever actually told anyone about any of this. We'd, we had held all this inside for two years, two and a half years, and it changed everything. It just, it was like relieving pressure off of a wound or something. It was like, and, and we expected people to judge, I think, at least I did, 
but we didn't get judged, we got love. And it was just God's love pouring into us through all these great people. And uh, here we are, and we're moving forward, and it's been three years. Everybody that I've talked to said, you have to share your story. You have to because um, somebody's going to get a blessing out of this. And you need to share your story. And while you think it's, you know, it's just pain for you, your pain is going to help somebody else. And you've been listening to the story of Dawn and Casey Cochran. And my goodness, when she finds out about her husband's infidelity, this is not my life and how she mustered up in her the capacity to forgive. Well, it revolutionized that relationship. And to be able to walk into a church and share your real story, not the fake story, the real story, and to do it without fear of reprisal or judgment, well, that's why people go to church. We didn't get judged, we just got love. Dawn and Casey's story brought to us by the great folks at Communio. A special thanks to J.P. DeGantz, and also to our team for putting together these remarkable stories. Again, go to communio.org to learn more about their important work. Don and Casey's story, a great love story, a great Jacksonville story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on?' "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' "'He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me, "'leaning his warm body against my arm. "'He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. "'Who will that be to me?' "'He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago.' "'Max shrugged 
and resumed his ball-tossing. I already got a grandfather, he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm. Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. "'What about them?' he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet! he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me.
I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind, like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker and four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer 
if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to OurAmericanStories.com they're some of our favorites and today we're sitting down with Adam Makos author of great military history books such as A Higher Call, Devotion and his latest book and what we're talking about now Spearhead. Adam, I'm interested in how you got interested in World War II and who Clarence Smoyer was. My grandfather's got me interested, Lee. It was, uh, I was a kid, and they used to take me to air shows and museums. They had both fought in World War II, and they didn't see combat. And so for them, World War II was fascinating. They were fascinated by the heroes who had won the war by the time they got into it. So they were able to talk about it. They were able to show me and my brother their photo albums and they lit the spark in us that we thought World War II was cool and we thought the men who fought it were the best Americans. And what we did to show our appreciation, we started a little homemade newsletter. And it eventually became a little magazine called Valor Magazine. And we would interview veterans, first our grandfathers, next the guy next door, and then guys in our city. And before you know it, we were kids in high school and then later in college publishing a magazine to honor people who were four times our age. In this case, a friend in college had told me about this local hero in his hometown. The guy was living in Allentown, and and my buddy said, listen, there's a hero there from World War II who had fought as a tank gunner. He was one of our most decorated gunners, and he's living there in a row house in Allentown. Nobody knows he's there, not his family. They don't know what he did in the war. His neighbors don't. I didn't know much about armored warfare. But I knew there was something special about this guy because he had supposedly fought this duel in World War II that was said to be the most famous tank duel of the war. So one day I just went knocking, and Clarence Schmoyer opened the door and invited me into his kitchen table. His family grew up in deep poverty. His father was away working for the CCC. His mother was a housekeeper. They lived in a house so 
you might say dilapidated, you could hear the neighbors on the other side of the, the wall. So he grew up poor, and Clarence, when he would come home from high school, whereas other kids would go to football practice or they would go hang out at the movie theater, Clarence came home, and he, he one of his classmates, her father was in the candy business. So he went to that man, and he said, I'd like to sell candy. And so Clarence would take a box of chocolate bars, Hershey's and all those, and just like a ballpark vendor, he would go door to door at night. Again, he's a 14-year-old kid selling candy bars to try to help his family. And that's where he developed that protective nature. And he also developed a little bit of a self selfish nature in one sense, in that he believed that no one was going to help him, no one was going to look out for him, and he had to take care of his family because no one's going to help us. Clarence Smoyer was a member of this spearhead division. Now, he was a 21-year-old gunner at the time. He's a tall, lanky kid with blonde hair, quiet. I always said he was a gentle giant, and I was always amazed that he was a great tank gunner. But one of the reasons he lived in obscurity was partially because he chose that and partially because he was in an obscure unit. The spearhead division during World War II is very little known. It's called the Third Armored Division. And a lot of people confuse it with Patton's Third Army. Third Army is a big unit. The war reporters are tagging along and they're sending back the dispatches. Patton is charging out of France. Patton is doing this. Patton, Patton slapped the guy. You know, the whole unit is being tracked. Third Armored Division was a unit known for breaking through the enemy lines and then running in radio silence, just like a submarine, behind the lines, sowing chaos. And so the reporters weren't sending back dispatches. This unit was just creating mayhem. It lost the most tanks of World War II of any American unit. It lost more men killed in action than the 101st Airborne or the 82nd Airborne, and nobody knows its name. Amazing. And, and, and talk about tanks before we go anywhere else. You know, Patton, this was his specialty in World War I. I think it's why he got the high command in the European theater, because of his tank knowledge and the importance of tanks. Talk about tanks, their importance and who are these guys inside the tanks? We know a lot, I think, about the guys inside submarines. But I always felt like a tank was a submarine above ground, and everybody was gunning for it. Who are these men? Was it, is it a volunteer mission to be inside these tanks like it is for subs? How does it all work? You know, in the early days it was, but then after a while they started putting guys in it, whether they liked it or not. Especially in the late war, you almost had to be forced into a tank thing is, the Sherman tank is such a, a beautiful machine, we always think it's invincible. But you're right, it's like a submarine that can't hide. And in the early war, our Shermans were a fine tank. When they went into the African campaign, the British were using them before us. And they reported great results. You've got five men in that machine, a gunner, a loader, a bow gunner, a commander, and a driver. So it's, it's a tightly packed unit, a band of brothers in an American tank. The trouble was, by 1944-45, we took those same Sherman tanks that had been fighting in Africa and we sent them into Normandy. And there they encountered this German tank called the Panther. And this thing had a bigger gun and it had massive armor. And by 1944-45, there was almost a rule. You need seven or eight Shermans to tackle one Panther or Tiger tank of the enemy. Well, Clarence was at first a loader in the tank, and he loved it because he didn't want to hurt anybody. He wanted to get through World War II without taking a life. He never even liked to hunt rabbits as a kid because he'd have to kill them. And so he was happy to just shovel the shells into the gun and let somebody else pull the trigger. Now, when the unit was training up on the English seacoast, they said, now what happens if our gunners get knocked out? The loaders need to know how to shoot. 
So Clarence and the other loaders were all put in the gunner's seat. They were given a competition. You have to shoot at a target a thousand yards away up on the coastal bluffs, and we're going to see who's the best loader turned gunner. And Clarence nailed this thing eight times. And his crew received a big magnum of scotch as a reward. And they all drank that night. And they said, someday you are going to be our gunner. Because like it or not, you have a talent. And so after the heavy losses in France, when they were charging through Belgium again, gunning for the German border, Clarence was put in the gunner's seat. And this reluctant warrior is suddenly given the most responsibility on the tank. Because if you miss, that means your enemy gets to hit you. And statistically, when a Sherman tank was hit, one man was going to come out dead, another was going to come out wounded. So Clarence, the reason he was such a great gunner wasn't because he hated the enemy. It was because he loved the men inside that tank, his family, he called them. And he knew if he missed, one of them were going to come out dead, another wounded. He was 20 when he went on that ship over to England. He came in about three weeks after D-Day, entered the hedgerow fighting, led the breakthrough out of France, it was a harrowing job. I mean, when we talk about selflessness, every time his commander would come back from the briefing, he had a pipe, and the pipe in his mouth would be bouncing up and down because his teeth were chattering so badly. Every time these guys got in these tanks to go charge forward toward the Germans, they were terrified. But guys like Clarence, they embraced that, well, there's that, that biblical verse which says, who will go forth for us? And then the answer is, send me. Clarence embodied that. It was that idea that, well, somebody has to. So send me. Somebody has to protect the guys behind us in the column. Somebody has to go first. Leading the way, being the first tank over the hill, the first tank around the bend, when leading is oftentimes a death sentence. For Clarence, his first taste of responsibility was at Mons, Belgium. We had broken out of France, and we found out there's this German army running back to Germany, so the spearhead division was given orders, turn on a dime, go north, and lay an ambush for them. So they did, and they beat the, the German army there, and you've got 100,000 or more Germans coming toward you, and we parked our tanks around the various roadblocks. Clarence's tank that night was coiled up. They would park five tanks in a fan, and a German tank that night blundered into their position in the dark, and it parked right next to him. He's in the gunner seat. He's got a German tank idling next to him in the dark. And his commander, a young man named Paul Faircloth, came up. They were all trying to catch some shut-eye. And Paul said, okay, we've got to shoot. And Clarence threw this fit because he didn't want to shoot in the dark when this enemy tank, even though he could hear it, even though he could almost touch it, he knew if he missed, he was going to hit the tank on the other side of him. And the tank on the other side of that German was American. And so the German tank shuts down its engine and we have to wait till daylight now. So Clarence is in that sardine can for hours and hours, and the hours are ticking by, and it's just this nerve-wracking thing where you have the enemy tank next to you, and it probably knows you're there, and it's probably waiting to shoot you too. And then when daylight comes, he finally has the courage to pull that trigger, and he kills the first tank of World War II that he would kill. But the amazing thing was he was afraid to look inside. All the guys in the tank said, we've got to look inside, and... See, did the German crew get out in the night or did we just kill them all? And Clarence wouldn't do it. He refused to get out. He refused to ever look inside the hatch. Instead, his commander went and did it for him. And Paul looked inside and he shut the hatch. And he never told Clarence what he saw in there. But Clarence was so reluctant, so fearful, that it wouldn't be for many months that he found the courage to even 
own up to what his job was. And let's talk about the, the key moments in his development as a warrior. Talk about a few of them. Tell a few stories about Clarence's progression from a reluctant warrior and a, and a loader to this leader and this, this fighter. There were a series of early on, you might say traumatic, somewhat depressing incidents. So Clarence's commander, Paul, who we were talking about, the next day uh, they're getting shelled and Paul is going out of his tank to help some wounded men. And Paul got blasted by a mortar, his leg torn off, and he died right in front of Clarence's eyes, thrown up on a bank in Belgium. So Clarence watches his friend die. The American army grinds its way into Germany through the West Wall. They have to blast their way through these pillboxes, and they first meet these Germans who refuse to surrender. At one pillbox, the tanks surrounded it, and they urged the Germans to come out. The Germans said, the hell with it. So the Sherman tanks had to literally go around it and shoot in through the back door of the bunker to get the Germans to finally surrender. So he had to see that. He had to battle his way through the West Wall. Finally, the American army starts to run out of steam because our supply lines are stretched all the way from Normandy. So he gets a breather. During a shelling, Clarence is billeted in this German house, and he's too apathetic to even go hide under the couch or hide in the closet. He just sits there eating his K-rations while the shells are shaking the house. So he was in this downward spiral. And then they get called into the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans have made this last offensive, and all the guys who are parked in this German town are, are told, saddle up, we're out of here in three hours, and we're going somewhere south of here where something bad is happening. And finally, they would learn they're going to fight in the snow, they're going to fight in the Ardennes forest, and worse, that's where they really came toe-to-toe with the German Panther tanks, because Hitler threw everything he had left into this battle, and Clarence gets to watch as the American tanks, in many cases, have to hide from the enemy because we just couldn't handle them. So there are times where he's hiding in the night and a German column of tanks is driving just outside, just beyond him in the forest, and he has to hold his fire. So he goes through this crucible of of things that would break a lot of people today. And coming out of the Battle of the Bulge, the army realized they had to change something. And that change was the Pershing. It was the super tank that was supposed to end the Third Reich. Well, Clarence is given one of the 20 Pershings that come to the European theater, and it's untested. They just decided, we're in such dire straits, we're going to test this thing in battle. So his talent was recognized. He's given this tank. He pulls it up to a hill overlooking a German valley, the Rhineland, and it's flooded down there, and all the houses are abandoned. And half the 3rd Armored Division gathers around him, including his general, General Maurice Rose, who was actually the highest-ranking Jewish-American in the European theater. General Rose is a two-star, and he's standing next to Clarence's tank, and he's going to watch a firing demonstration. So Clarence climbs in, and he's nervous as can be, and he sets his sights on the chimneys of these houses, 1,000, 2,000 yards away, and he blasts the easiest one, and the chimney explodes. And his crew started laughing because outside of the tank, nobody had seen this Pershing's 90-millimeter gun fire before, and it had such a blast that came out of the sides as well as the front that it bowled General Rose over into the mud and his entourage, and they all are getting up and they're soaking wet, but they watch that chimney explode and they're happy. The men are cheering because these were guys who, who used to say, give us a panther and we'll take on the enemy. They used to say, our tanks are only good for driving around the countryside. We want tanks to fight with, not look good in parades. So this is a unit that has been depressed. They were actually taking their Sherman tanks 
and they were up armoring them, just like our Humvees in Iraq. They were taking armor off of German tanks that had been knocked out and welding it to the front of our Shermans. They had been taking sandbags and putting them on the Shermans. They had been taking concrete and making concrete armor on the Shermans. That's how terrified they were. Suddenly they're watching this Pershing tank, the only thing that can go toe-to-toe with a German tank, and they know there's hope. And the 3rd Armored Division set its sights on a city called Cologne. And the significance of Cologne was that we had to get a bridge across the Rhine. We had to get into the heart of Germany and end this thing. And the Rhine was like this natural barrier. So the 3rd Armored Division sets out fighting through the little Rhineland towns, approaching Germany's third largest city. And Cologne was known as the fortress city because Hitler had ordered it defended to the last And we knew we had to conquer this block by block, and it was going to be the biggest urban battle of the European war. This is where Clarence really stepped up, because he's got the Pershing, and he's put in the front. That was the downside to the new tank. It meant that you are going to lead every attack. And he assumed that responsibility. When they lined up at the gates of the city, his commander said, gentlemen, I give you Cologne. Let's knock the hell out of it. And he comes into Cologne, and he's leading them block by block. The armored infantry is moving up alongside of them. The danger in Cologne was you had to watch out for not just your left, not just your right. You had to watch out above and below because you have German soldiers on the rooftops with Molotov cocktails. You had German 88-millimeter guns, cannons, dug into the basement level. Enemy soldiers using the basements as tunnels so they would knock down the walls and they could move an entire block unseen. You also had that fear of a German soldier with a Panzerfaust, which is a glorified bazooka, who could just step out of any doorway and put that thing right through your tank. And then on top of it, the biggest fear and the most uncommon thing for urban warfare, German tanks. They were spotted in the city. There were several of them that had crossed the bridge to make a last stand. And you could turn any corner, and that's what Clarence worried about. You could turn any corner, you could come to any intersection, and you could drive right into the crosshairs of a German tank. And he did. First time he met Gustav Schaefer was through the gun site. Clarence had pulled up to an intersection, a massive four-way, and he's scanning across the way, and Gustav Schaefer's Panzer IV tank nosed into the opposite street, and it saw Clarence's tank, and it backed up really quickly. So before Clarence could even put his gun on it, it backed up. Gustav was one of three German tanks sent over the morning of this battle, and they were sent on a suicide mission. Three tanks against an American army? I mean, it, it, it was nonsense, but... Gustav never had a choice in this. He was a simple farm kid from northern Germany, grew up on the windswept fields. His family used to harvest their crops sunup till sundown. Sometimes they worked by the light of the moon. He had no radio, no electricity. His hobby was to go and pedal his bicycle to the nearby railroad tracks to watch trains go by on the Hamburg to Bremen line. He wanted to be a locomotive conductor. But Gustav... He saw a human, even in his enemy, and 17 years old when he's drafted. They took one look at this little German. He was barely five foot, blonde hair, and they said, you're going into the Panzers. You're the perfect size for them. There was no saying no. There was no no saying, I don't think so. I think I'll abstain from this. I, I object to this war. He knew nothing about this Hitler guy. The only Jewish person Gustav knew growing up was a neighboring farmer. And this neighboring farmer had once lended his family a cow to help them through a tough time and never asked for anything in return. So that was his worldview of the Jewish people. They're generous. They help my family. Why are they Hitler's enemy? Well, these two guys are trading machine gun fire now. 
searching for one another, trying to see a ricochet, trying to see the tracers hit something. And Clarence is getting frustrated because he's unable to hit Gustav's tank, so he does something really clever. He loads up an armor-piercing round, and he starts shooting through the building where Gustav's tank is hiding. Shoots one shot, two, and he's seeing bricks, the building, which has been damaged by air raids, because the whole city had been hit by 200-plus air raids. The whole city was rubble, largely. And this building starts to cave in, and Clarence shoots it again and again, and he eventually brings down the building onto Gustav's tank. It knocks Gustav's turret out of whack, and Gustav eventually has to get out of that tank, and he decides, I've had enough of fighting for Germany, and he runs away and hides. And then this one moment of what you might say is free thinking, deciding I'm done with this. I'm done risking my life for the Third Reich. So he runs away, and he's later survives thanks to what Clarence did. Clarence fights a second tank, though. What happened was he was held up battling Gustav. So the army sent two Sherman tanks forward toward Cologne's cathedral. Massive Gothic cathedral built over 600 years. It's one of the wonders of the world. And it was still standing. It was blackened and it was battered, but it was still there. And behind the cathedral was the Rhine River. Now the Germans had blown the bridge over the Rhine, so we knew we weren't getting across today. But we still had to win the battle. And we knew once we reached the cathedral, you've reached the Rhine, Cologne is ours. And these two Shermans are about to seize victory when suddenly the right one gets hit and the left one gets hit by an unseen German tank. There was a Panther tank hiding in a tunnel and it ambushed both of them. You see the commander of one of these tanks, Carl Kellner, comes out. He's a young man from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's got glasses. He had just gotten a battlefield commission a few weeks earlier. He had a fiance waiting for him back home and he rolls over the turret with his leg missing and he bleeds to death right in front of their eyes. So in the last hour of the battle, there's a tank out there still killing Americans, and Clarence's crew is given the call. They hear the call come out on the radio. Can anybody deal with this Panther tank? Because it pulled up and it parked in front of the cathedral. The ultimate metaphor, really. You have this place of, of, of faith and, and worship, and then you have this enemy who is parked in front of it saying, we're going to keep you from this, and we're going to fight to the last round. They were fanatics. A lot of German soldiers were now swimming the Rhine. They were surrendering in droves, and these guys decided to fight to the end. And Clarence's crew came up in their Pershing, and they fought this incredible duel with this German panther. Clarence's Pershing starts coming up a parallel street, ready to breach the intersection and come face to face with this panther. The panther's gun turns, and is facing the empty intersection where Clarence's tank is coming. The German commander inside that panther had gotten restless. He saw no more Americans coming where he had knocked out those Shermans, so he said, they're going to come at me from another direction. And so he aimed at this empty intersection. Clarence had a plan, which was, when we get there, we're going to go into the intersection, we're going to shoot him once, and we're going to back up. Because he had been schooled in the idea that it takes more than one hit to kill a German tank. But when his tank pulled into that intersection, the driver saw the panther, and he saw that he was looking down that black muzzle of this German gun that could snuff his life. And the driver panicked. He floored the throttle and he threw the Pershing out into the middle of the intersection. So now you have two tanks broadside, both with their guns facing each other. It's like two battleships. Clarence was quicker on the trigger than even the German gunner who was waiting for him. So he fired and he didn't aim. He just fired anywhere he could into this German tank and he shook the tank and he rattled it. And the concussion shook the men inside, and it started to smoke. And one German crewman decided to leave. And then a second decided, and they start pouring out of the hatches. And that German gunner did not squeeze his trigger. 
So Clarence now knows he has another problem. There's five men in that German tank, and any one of them can reach over, pull the trigger, and the Pershing is going to go up in flames. So he shoots it a second time, and he moves his fire forward, and he fires it through the crew compartment. And then he calls for a reload, and he fires a third time. And they radioed back, any further and we'll be swimming. Cologne is secured. They had literally stared death in the face. And the other tankers were so thankful that they had gone and done this and knocked out this panther because other men had been sent in lesser tanks and they were told, you're going to have to go after the panther next if this Pershing fails. So these guys would come up and they'd bring them bottles of champagne that they had just looted. One crew came up and they said, you saved our lives. And Clarence said, well, I really saved my life and yours was just along for the ride. He was kind of self-effacing like that, but... He became a 21-year-old corporal from Coal Country, Pennsylvania, who conquered a German city like Napoleon. And next thing you know, it's in the newsreels around the country. And Clarence's uh, family was called to the movie theater because they would always play the newsreel right before the main picture. And sure enough, his mother and father, for the first time in their lives, they were so poor they had never been to the movies before. They sat in the theater and they saw the desperate fighting in Cologne and they heard the newscaster And then they saw their son come up out of the turret, and they said, my God, he's alive. After vanquishing the Panther, Clarence was hailed as the hero of Cologne and nominated for the Bronze Star. Tell us how he lost that award. It's a really interesting story. He was nominated for the Bronze Star. His commander, Bob Early, who commanded the tank at that time, he got the Bronze Star. Two days later, Clarence was wandering the streets And there was a bunch of German kids there. There were still 40,000 people living in the city, 40,000 civilians. And these German kids saw an American coming, and the fear had been gone by then. We weren't going to cut off their ears, as they were told. And these kids came up to Clarence, this gentle giant, and they started begging for bubble gum. And Clarence was standing there, and their mother was sitting on the steps of their ruined house. And he saw these three or four kids, and he gets down, and he says, Guys, I don't have any gum. I don't have any gum. And they're still tugging at his shirt and his legs. And he stands up, and he empties his pockets. He's showing them, I don't have any gum. And finally, he's shooing them over to their mother. He's got his hand on their back, and he's pushing them to their mother when the MPs come around the corner in their Jeep. And they pull up the Jeep, and they say, we got you. You're fraternizing with a young woman and three or four kids. You're talking to the enemy. And that was a no-no. A couple days later, Clarence's commanding officer comes in, and he says, I was so proud of how you knocked out that Panther tank. I was so proud of you when you did that amazing gunnery display for General Rose, and now you go and do this. And it was absolute, utter nonsense. It was that sort of elitism that you see sometimes. Adam, I'm interested in what happens next. The battle at what was called the Nazi Fort Knox. Well, the 3rd Armored Division, again, had been leading the way since France. There were two heavy armored divisions, the 3rd and the 2nd. 2nd was called Hell on Wheels, 3rd is Spearhead. Eisenhower and the brass are trying to figure out how do we end the war? What's the heart of Germany? Is it Berlin, where Hitler's hiding out? Or is it the Ruhr Valley, where Germany's producing all their munitions and their coal and their steel? And they decided to leave the symbolic victory to the Russians. Let them take Berlin. We're going to take the Ruhr. So they sent Spearhead. Now, this is after we leaped the Rhine. They sent Spearhead up from the south. They said, we're going to encircle the Ruhr pocket. Hell on Wheels is going to come around from the north. We're going to come up from the south. And we're going to pincer them, and we're going to seal the Ruhr, and we're going to end the war. To do so, though, the 3rd Armored Division had to make an epic drive. They went 100 miles in 24 hours behind enemy lines. 
We're saying through German villages, through German autobahns, the German soldiers on the side of the road would just look up and drop their rifles because they'd see this American armored column just racing at full speed right past them. It was awe-inspiring. So after running radio silent for, for 24 hours, the Spearhead Division reaches a city called Paderborn. Paderborn was the gateway to the Ruhr. It was a city that all the communication and rails, rail lines flowed through to reach the Ruhr, so we had to take this place. The downside was it was the home of the German armor schools. It was a Nazi Fort Knox, as they called it. The SS trained their tankers there. The Wehrmacht trained their tankers. They tested their new tanks, and those men would be coming out to fight. And in a sad twist of fate, General Rose, who was leading Clarence's division there, he was always out in front, like Patton, and he got ambushed. The night before the big battle for the Nazi Fort Knox, a bunch of German tanks had hidden in a field, and they ambushed his column, and they wiped out this American column. And when General Rose tried to surrender to one of the German tankers, when he tried to lower the pistol belt from his hips, and the German in the tank who was holding a Schmeiser machine gun thought Rose was going for his gun, and he pumped him full of 30 bullets, entire magazine, into General Rose. So General Rose became the highest-ranking Jewish-American killed in Europe, highest-ranking officer, and this is on the eve of the battle for the Nazi Fort Knox. This takes place on April 1st, 1945. It was Easter morning, and it was almost a scene right out of, I, I think of like Braveheart, where William Wallace is about to rally his troops for that first battle, and he gives that speech about freedom. And... In this case, this was real. The tanks lined up on this hillside overlooking Paderborn, and the sun is rising behind them, and a chaplain is going from tank to tank, giving a blessing, and the men are taking off their hats. They're coming out of the turrets. Some are coming down to the ground and kneeling in the soggy ground, and he blesses each of the tanks down the row, and that's where Clarence looks at all these guys, and that's where he kind of came to that final epiphany, and that is, they're all my family, and he's going to lead with the biggest gun, with the biggest tank, and he knows he's going to be the biggest target. And so they charge across this field into the teeth of the German tanks who are guarding what was called the Paderborn Rail Yard. And it's this amazing battle where Germans were hiding in the shell holes, and these are SS men. These are a lot of the, the most fanatical Germans. They were the only ones who'd still be fighting at this point. And Clarence is getting fire from the rail yard itself. The German tanks are picking them off as they're charging across the field. Clarence's unit started with 15 tanks. Guess how many got in there? Three. Three reached the Paderborn rail yard. And Clarence's tank is there. And amazingly, they get hit. First time in the war, Clarence gets hit. He gets hit on the muzzle of his gun. And at first, the smoke came into the, the tank, and the crew thought their tank was on fire. So we actually see Clarence's crew in the pitched battle, the last battle, abandoned tank. And they go hide in a ditch, and the bullets are cutting over their head. The SS are swarming the rail yard. There's German tanks moving around them, and Clarence is now hiding in a ditch. And the other two Sherman tanks that are with them, one gets hit. It's chaos. There's now one Sherman tank trying to hold its own against all of these enemies converging on them. And that's when Clarence had this bright idea. He looked at the muzzle of the Pershing and he said, it hit us, but I think it hit the muzzle casing. It didn't hit the gun tube itself. And they knew this was going to be a gamble. He said, we can get back in that. We can still fire this gun. The downside was if he was wrong, if there was an obstruction, you fire that gun through a broken barrel, that back blast is coming into the turret and you are dead. And so they ran back into that tank 
while the enemy is shooting at them, some of Clarence's crew had to go under the tank and in through the escape hatch. The bullets were so many. They get in the tank, and Clarence decides, all right, we're going to keep fighting. And then he gets a tap on the shoulder. His commander, Bob Early, says, tank. And he taps him on the right shoulder, and he says, five o'clock. Five o'clock? That's behind you. That's over your right shoulder. A German tank had snuck behind them no more than seconds after they got back in the tank. And Clarence turns the gun. There's one problem. He's got a round load in the gun that's not made for taking out tanks. It's a high explosive round. It's meant for fighting all those troops that are swarming them. It's going to bounce right off of that tank. And worse, it's a panther. And he can just feel his commander now gripping his shoulder. Clarence does something amazing. And again, I always say he's our best gunner of World War II. He swings that gun over and he knows the time it takes to take that shell out and change it for an armor piercing is going to get them killed. So when his gun is turning toward the panther, right when it appears in front of the panther, he shoots that armor piercing, or that high explosive shell into the soil. And the soil throws up this massive cloud in front of the panther. It blinds the enemy gunner. Clarence calls for a reload. His loader slams an armor-piercing shell in, locks the breach. Clarence fires right through the panther, through its thickest armor, and the armor-piercing shell goes in and knocks out the enemy tank. The Germans assaulting the rail yard all see this, and the Germans lose heart and run away. And the battle is saved. The rest of the American forces make it into the rail yard. They take Paderborn. They take the Nazi Fort Knox. And that day, Clarence, for the first time, he looked inside the tank that he had destroyed. And for the first time, he owned up to the fact that he was an American tank gunner. Talk about coming home. Uh, What was that like, you know, from facing that kind of intense battle day in, day out for quite a while, uh, coming back home, reintegrating with the world and life. Talk about his life after the war. Clarence came home and he had planned on relaxing a little bit, but then one of his buddies said, hey, all the boys are coming back. You're never going to find a job if you don't grab one now. So five days later, after he's home, he goes and gets a job. Within a year, he marries. And he locks away all of the... never saw his own newsreel film. So he never even saw himself in combat. He puts the war behind him. Decades pass. It's finally the 90s. And somebody finds that film. The film of him fighting his way through Cologne. And they send it to him on a VHS. And he's living in a mobile home park up in Palmerton, Pennsylvania, And one quiet afternoon, he puts that VHS in and he watches himself fighting through Cologne, shooting at enemy troops, shooting at enemy tanks, tumbling a building on Gustav's tank. And suddenly, all the bad memories from World War II, for some reason, it triggered the bad memories. Seeing his friend Paul Faircloth, his commander, killed, coming across General Rose's body. And he goes through the years just kind of uh, suffering through trauma. Finally, 2013 arrives, and he's been urged to talk about it. Everybody says, talk about your story. Go to the VA. Talk to the veterans there. And he goes to the VA, and he realizes, these kids are all from Iraq. They're all from Afghanistan. They don't want to hear from an old man of of World War II with white hair. So he finally comes to a conclusion, there's only one person I can talk to. One person who really know what I went through, because his whole tank crew was dead by then. They had all passed. There's only one man left he could talk to, and that was the German he had fought against. And so they tracked down Gustav Schaefer, and they found out he was still living. Gustav, who had faced him all those years before on the same boulevard, and Gustav was willing to meet. 
March 2013, he steps in front of the Cologne Cathedral, looking around, seeing every crowd passing by, looking for his enemy, and Gustav Schaefer appeared. Clarence is a tall American in the gray jacket that says U.S. Army. Gustav is a little short German in a black winter coat, almost looks like a German tanker, and the two men approached, both very hesitant because neither knew how the other would accept him. And then finally they stuck, stuck out their hands and they started shaking. They didn't stop shaking. They wrapped their arms around each other and they started hugging. And Clarence leaned over to Gustav and he said, the war is over, we can be friends now. And Gustav said, ja, ja, gut. And they went back to the hotel. Gustav remembered some English from his days as a POW. And I got to watch these guys sit on a couch at the Hilton Cologne, each with a Kolsch beer in hand, and they started swapping stories. They started talking about the action they had seen, the battle they had fought, and they even told jokes. Clarence said, our tank had a refrigerator in it. Did yours? And Gustav said, yeah, yeah, only in winter time." These guys hit it off, and the next day they went to the place where they had fought. They stood on the same street, and Gustav said, this is where I was parked. This is where I was when I was shooting at you. Clarence said, this is where I was. And Gustav said, you know, I'm kind of thankful you shot that building over on us. Otherwise, one of us would have died that day. And they walked away as friends. They would exchange Christmas cards. They were pen pals. They even talked on Skype. If you can imagine that, two men in their 90s, sitting down 5,000 miles apart, Clarence on a laptop, Gustav on his desktop, and they talked face-to-face. How was your day? It's good to see you again. What is new? And you've been listening to Adam Makos telling the story of Clarence Smoyer. And my goodness, there's just so much there. And in front of that same cathedral where they had met so many decades before, they embraced and became friends. A beautiful, beautiful story. Clarence Smoyer's story. In a way, Gustav Schaefer's story, too. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 